One of, one of the key questions you have to answer when you open up the Bible is, what am I reading? Like, it's, it's, it's one of the most important questions you can answer. You, you open up the Bible, uh, and you've got to decide, what is this thing that is in front of you? So is it, is it a manual? Because you read a manual in a certain way. Like, you don't read a manual necessarily as you read other books. Like, you read it in a specific way. So is that what it is? Is the Bible a manual for life? Is it something that you go into and you look at and you take out bits and you go, oh, well, this is about this bit and this is about this bit. You look at the bit you're struggling with, you, you get into it. Is, is that what the Bible is? Or is the Bible a story? You know, should, should we be reading it like a story? Normally, when you read a story, you start at the beginning, you move through to the end. That's the customary way to read a story. Um, like, is that what it is? As we look at the Bible, as we open it up, are we reading a story? Because you'll read it a certain way if you think it's a story. Are you reading history? Is that what you're reading as you open up the Bible? So as you open the Bible, is what you're reading information about things that have happened in the past? Are you reading poetry? Is that, is that broadly speaking what the Bible is when you open it? Because you cannot read those things in the same way. If you read poetry, but you read it as if you were reading a manual, you will make some pretty bad life decisions. Because that's not how poetry is intended to be understood. Similarly, if you read history as if it is a story, you're in danger of believing a philosophy rather than coming to know a, the personal God of the Bible. You see, what you think you're reading massively impacts how you read that thing. And so, so as we encourage, as you open the Bible in your life, one of the first questions you need to ask yourself and you need to be able to answer is, what are you actually reading? What, what is it? And when we open the Psalms, so when we get into the Psalms, then we need to be clear that what we're reading is poetry. That's, that's what it is. The Psalms, it's, it's a book of poems. The Psalms are full of images and phrases, and they're designed to stir deep emotions. That's what poetry is about. Poetry is about getting inside you and making you feel certain things. Poetry is about communicating sort of general truths, but not normally words that are to be taken literally. But there is another question we need to answer when we look at the Psalms, and that is, what is the intended purpose of the Psalms? Like, why are they there? Why were they written? Why have they been preserved for 3,000 years? Like, why did they make it into the Bible? On the one hand, the Psalms are sort of deeply personal. They're about one person's, whoever the psalmist was, experience of God. About his experience of relating to God through whatever he was going through. And so, on the one hand, as you read a psalm, you're reading something that's really personal and individual. It's specific to that person. It's what they were feeling and talking about and saying. It's about the feelings they experienced and how they express their response to that. So, on the one hand, these psalms are, uh, are very personal, very unique, very individual. But on the other hand, they're, this, they're also corporate because they were designed for use by other people. They're written to be sung by people as part of worship. 
If you look at the start of Psalm 4 that's right in front of you, it says at the start that it was written for, I can't remember quite what the word is, but like the director of music, I think is what it says. Um, and so what that's saying is this was specifically written for the intention of giving to Christians, well, not Christians, to, to people who follow God, so Old Testament Jews, as part of their worship. And the reason why I think it matters is because it means that the Psalms primarily do two key things. If you're looking at the Psalms, which I've just encouraged you to do, so assuming that you're all now going to go away and take my advice and open up the Psalms during the, the rest of this year, as you're doing that, you need to understand the Psalms are primarily doing two things. The first is they, are, they express genuine feelings and experiences of individuals as they go through the ups and downs of life. And because of that, what they do for us is they give us helpful language with which we can express our joys and sorrows, our thanks and our requests. You can do a lot worse in your life than just taking some of the psalms and praying those things for yourself. Like that, That's what they're about. They give you a language to communicate your joys and sorrows, your requests and your thanksgivings towards God. But they also do something else. That's one thing the joys do. So they give you a vocabulary to communicate your experiences with God. The second thing they do is they provide guidance for people on how they should respond to the situations that we face in life. So what I'm saying is that the Psalms are on the one hand reflective. They're about how do we reflect on what's going on in life. But they are also instructive. Okay? They do both of those things. They help us to reflect on our experience of life, but they also instruct us on how we should go about thinking about the various things we go through. So, we're, we're in Psalm 4, and we're back in the world that we were in last week in Psalm 3, if you were around, this world of distress. And because of what I've just said, we're going to see two things. We're going to see how the psalmist reflects on his distress, and we're also going to see some instruction about how we should respond to our own distress, and to the distress of other people around us. You see, that's the nature of the world, isn't it? You'll know that sometimes you are the one in distress, sometimes you are the one suffering, but sometimes it's not so much that we are the one suffering, we're just walking alongside other people who are suffering. So to try and, to try and put it another way, sometimes we are Job going through suffering. And sometimes we are Job's comforters coming alongside someone while they suffer. Like that, that's the reality of how we experience distress and suffering in the world. Sometimes it's directly something we experience. Sometimes it's about how do we walk alongside others as they go through that. And so in Psalm 4, we're going to see David's instruction on how we relate to distress in our life. Whether we are the one going through it or whether we're seeking to comfort others as they go through it. So, let's have it, let's have it open before us. The, the psalm is bracketed, so it begins and ends, verse 1, verse 7 and 8, with David's personal response to his distress. And it could be summarised as faith-filled crying out to God. That's how David responds to the distress in his life. And again, as I said in all the Psalms, if you, if you, were, gonna, if you were to read through the Psalms, you would see this again and again. So, so look, at verses, uh, look at verse 1 with me. It 
says this, answer me when I call to you, my righteous God. Give me relief from my distress. Have mercy on me and hear my prayer. And then, and then at the end, verse 7, fill my heart with joy when their grain and new wine abound. In peace I will lie down and sleep, but you alone, Lord, make me dwell in safety. That is how David responds to the suffering and the distress that he's going through. And it's really important we just understand how he responds. So the first thing he doesn't do is he doesn't bottle it up. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't do that very British thing of like grin and bear it. You know, people say, how are you getting on? And you say, fine. You know, he, that's not how David responds to what he's going through. He, he doesn't bottle it up and, and deal with it just in, internally. But also, he doesn't just simply try to sort it out himself. You know, go into action mode. I'm in this difficult situation. What is it I'm going to do to get myself out of that situation? He doesn't merely look at the bright side and go, oh, well, you know, there's loads of people worse off than me, so just need to get on. He doesn't do that. No, this is what he does, and this is so important that you understand this, because you will never relate well to difficult things in your life until you understand this. He takes that distress to God. That is what... That is what people who have known God and followed him have done throughout history. They take their pain, they take their suffering, they don't pretend it doesn't exist. They don't bottle it up, they don't grin and bear it, they don't simply try and sort it out themselves. They take it to God. You can see that in verses 1, verses 7. He asks God for relief. Verse 1, give me relief from my distress. Isn't that what, what you want when you're in those difficult places? Aren't, don't you want some relief from it? Well, then take that to God and ask him for that. Give me relief from my distress. Or to take his language in verse 7, fill my heart with joy. I don't know where you are this afternoon. I don't know whether, you, whether you're struggling with things. I don't know how you're suffering, what distress you're in. But if you are in that place where you feel that you're in a dark place, where you are struggling, where you feel like everything feels like too much, here's what you can do. You can take that to God and say, God, give me some relief from this. God, in that darkness, fill my heart with joy. David is clear what he wants. He wants God to take away his distress. He wants joy instead of sorrow. And David is able to make that request to God because he knows certain things about God. So so you can see that in verse 1. Who does he say his God is? He says, my righteous God. He knows God is righteous. Therefore, he can ask God to deliver him because he can trust that God knows what is right to do in that situation. That's the great thing about asking God to give you relief from that distress that you're going through. You know he's not going to do it if it's not for your good. You can entirely trust him with that request. Because you know that whatever, however he responds to it will be right. It can, never, it can never turn out badly. If I ask somebody else to do that, then they might intervene, and that might be the worst thing possibly for me. It might be that that was something I had to actually go through. But when I'm asking God, God is entirely right. He knows what the best thing to do is any, in any situation is. So therefore, we can ask boldly for what we want, knowing he'll only give it us if it's the right thing. When things are hard, it's easy to forget God's righteousness. It's easy to think that God has suddenly become immoral or unkind. 
But David remembers that God is righteous and that he will do what is right in this situation. That's the first thing he knows about God. The second thing he knows about God is that God is merciful. That's the second thing he says uh, in verse 6. He says, have mercy on me and hear my prayer. This is, this is so important. We ask, for, we ask for relief from our distress, not primarily because we deserve to be spared what we're going through. We ask for it because God is merciful. You see, when we're suffering, we can have a tendency to think, this is so unfair. I don't deserve this. But the Bible says that although elements of it may be unfair, Although people may be treating us unfairly, although there may be some injustice in it, there is a degree to which every single one of us has rebelled against God. We have all gone our own way. We have all failed to love God and other people. And therefore, to some extent, we are all in some way responsible for the suffering in this world. None of us is entirely innocent. And because of that, none of us can ultimately say, God, save me from this suffering because I don't deserve this. But but what we can say is, God, I know you are merciful. And so show mercy on me in this situation. This this is so important because in our culture, we have this expectation that we we deserve a life without any hardship. We feel like any hardship is in some way uh, completely unfair. But that's not the way the Bible understands the world. Here is the one thing the Psalms will encourage us to do again and again. Take our distress to God. Trust in his righteousness. Trust in his goodness. And trust in his mercy. When times are hard, when when you're in that place, a place of distress, when you're struggling, when you're suffering, that we are tempted to withdraw. We're tempted to withdraw from God. That's always the temptation. Rather than take our distress to God, we're tempted to withdraw it into ourselves, to stop praying, to stop crying out to God, to stop meeting with his people. And the Psalms will say again and again, whatever you're going through, however you're feeling, however hard it is, you need to take that to God. That's the response of of, of someone who knows God. Whatever it is, you take it to him. Don't pull away. Always go towards. That's kind of where the psalm begins and ends. But but the rest of the psalm is actually much more about David's companions. It stops talking about his own experience and it starts talking about other people who are with him during this suffering. I've been... um, when I, when I was growing up, the, the Simpsons was an absolute phenomenon. Like it, was like, it was the glory day of the Simpsons. I think probably they're still churning out episodes. I have no idea if they're any good or not. They, they probably still are. But, but when I was growing up, it was like, th- these, this was like the heyday of the Simpsons. Uh, and I, I always remember this, this one episode. Homer Simpson has um, eaten something he shouldn't. I think it was like a blowfish from like a Japanese restaurant or something. Um, and it was, and it was uh, it, he goes to see Dr. Hibbert. And he goes to see Dr. Hibbert and the, 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 he comes in and he says, look, I've got, I've got some news for you. Um, unfortunately, if you, if you have eaten the venom from this blowfish, which it seems like you have, you only have 24 hours to live. 
Uh, and uh, and it, so then they have this conversation. And, and Dr. Hibbert says to him, now, you'll probably find yourself going through the, the five stages of death anxiety as a result of this. Um, and Holmes says, so, so what are they? And Dr. Hibbert says, well, the first is denial. And Holmes goes, no, it's not, because I'm not going to die. And then he goes, the next is anger. And he goes, well, you little. And then he goes, and the third one. And after that comes fear. But what's going to happen, Doc? What's going to happen, Doc? And then the fourth one is bargaining. Doc, you've got to help me out of this. I'll make it worth your while. And the fifth one is finally acceptance. Well, we've all got to go sometime. To which Dr. Hibbert responds, Mr. Simpson, your progress astounds me. Um, now... I don't know, I don't know how you deal with suffering, but there's five ways that people deal with suffering as it happens. There's fear, there's bargaining, there's denial, there's anger, there's acceptance. These are all things that we're tempted to do in response to difficult things happening in our life. If you were to look through your life, you will probably have found yourself doing one you may have even found yourself doing all five of those. So if you look back at your life, you can probably think of times where in the face of suffering, you found yourself bargaining. In the face of suffering, you found yourself getting angry. In the face of suffering, you found yourself fearful. The, these are the normal responses that people have to going through difficult things in their life. But the question that I want us to think about is, if they're the normal responses, what, is, what are the responses that David calls us to in this psalm? Because David is going to talk about three different responses that people have to going through difficult things or to walking with people as they go through difficult things. How do you respond, not only to your own suffering, but to someone else's suffering around you? What do you do when someone else is in distress? As you go through difficult things in your life, you will have a mix of people around you and they will be saying different things. And your experience of those difficult times and the fruit that comes out of those difficult times will largely depend on whose voices you listen to in that. Who are you going to pay attention to? Who's going to walk through those with you? So, let's get to it. Let's, let's look through it. I basically think two and three, four and five and six, that's kind of how it splits. Two and three is one group of people, one way of responding and, and so on. So let's get to verses two and three. Uh, some people you meet, as you're going through difficult times, they will not follow God, they will not know him, and we meet these people in verse 2 and 3. Let's read it. How long will you people turn my glory into shame? How long will you love delusions and seek false gods? How do these people react to David's suffering? Well, David says they turn his glory into shame. And that, that speaks of mockery. People who are mocking David in his distress. Maybe even rejoicing in it. These are people who will say things like, well... He had it coming to him, didn't he? Or maybe who joke about it at, at David's expense. There will be people out there who will take joy and delight in your suffering. And that is more common than we would think. If, if anything, we've become more aware of that over the last... 15 years with uh, the sort of explosion of social media. Because you just see it all the time in social media. Social media demonstrates that however bleak and unjust the suffering, there will be a group of people out there who will rejoice in that suffering. There are those who will seek to kick someone when they're down. 
Social media kind of puts a public face on that, but the reason that exists on social media is because it exists in our heart. Like, just, that's just a, a presentation of what is going on inside. And, I don't know, you'll have to look at your own heart to ask yourself whether that's more common in your heart than you'd like to admit. I, maybe it's because of jealousy or envy. Maybe simply boredom or dissatisfaction with our own life. But if we're honest with ourselves, I want to suggest that probably most of us know there have been times where we have been happy that something bad has happened to someone else. <coughs> There's a group of people who will glory, turn David's glory into shame, who will mock him in it, who will take delight in the suffering he's going through. But there's also something else going on in this, in this verse. Look at the second half of verse 2. Because the second half suggests that these are people who, uh, who don't believe in God, don't accept him, and maybe in the midst of your distress say things like, see, your God has abandoned you, your God doesn't exist. You'd be better off giving up on your God and living like I do. If you're, if you're a Christian here today, if you're somebody who knows Jesus, who follows him, when you go through difficult times... There, there will be those around you who rejoice when you suffer because then they're able to say, see, I knew it wasn't true. I knew you couldn't rely on God. I knew it was just a pipe dream. I knew it was just wishful thinking. Where's your God now? They rejoice because now they can say to you, you should give up on God and live life my way. Stop living for God. Stop, start embracing a new way of life. Following God has just brought you suffering and you'd be better off going your own way. Eating, drinking and being merry. And when life is hard, those voices sound appealing. You look at them and you look at their lives and you think, your life looks so easy. Your life looks so much more fun than mine feels right now. And we can be tempted to follow them down their delusions, to give up on God, to embrace a form of escapism where we ignore the truth and follow the crowd. And at those points where you're looking at that and it feels so appealing, then you need to know, verse 3, know that the Lord has set apart his faithful servant for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Those who find themselves rejoicing in our suffering, those who say, see, you're better off without God, they need to know this truth. God will rescue his people. And he will hear them when they cry out to him. If, you are, if you're someone here today, and you look around the church, and you look around this group of people and you say, not being funny, but your lives don't look that good. Like, it doesn't look like you've got it all together. It doesn't look like your life's going so well. Why would I want that? You need to know this truth. The life of a Christian, the life of someone who follows God, will be hard. That they may well be harder than your life. But in the hardship, God hears us. And we know that one day, God will rescue us. If you're someone here today who's trying to hold on to God when life feels hard... And when people around you are saying you'd be better off without him, you need to know this truth. God hears you when you cry out to him. And he has set you apart. And he will rescue you. You see, 
That, that's one responsible face. As, as we're walking through suffering, there'll be those around us who seek to use that suffering as a, as a way to pull us away from God, to take us away from that faithful crying out to God, away from him to pursuing our own life. That's, that's one response. We get a different response in, in verse 4. Look, look with me at verse 4. New group of people. Tremble and do not sin. When you're on your bed, search your hearts and be silent. Now, now that... That verse begins with tremble, but you'll notice in the footnotes um, that that word tremble could uh, be talking about anger. And that's the way it's quoted in the New Testament. So in the New Testament, you read this verse, it says, in your anger, do not sin. That's, the, that's where like, this, this comes from. And so I think here he's talking to those around him who, in response to his suffering, get angry. Now, you might, you might know what that feels like. That moment when you hear that someone has said something unkind to your kid at school and you just get so angry at how they've made your child feel. That moment when someone's life's being made miserable by someone in their family and you just feel so angry that they could do that to that person. That moment when someone is being treated unfairly at work and you get increasingly angry at how unjust it all is. Sometimes... Suffering in our own life or suffering in the lives of people around us can make us angry. We get angry about that suffering. And what this verse is saying is that that anger in itself is not wrong. God is blisteringly angry at all of the sin and pain and suffering in this world. The anger itself is not wrong. But here what David says is we we need to be careful that our anger does not lead us to sin. That's where we've got to be careful with this. You see, often when we get angry, we want to lash out. And all that happens then is that situations escalate, don't they? So we're angry about something that someone said to our child at school. And in our anger, we slander the child or the parents. And so the situation escalates and escalates, gets more and more out of control. We're angry about the way someone's behaving in our family. And in our anger, we lash out and we say unkind and hurtful things. In our anger, we can become violent, we can lie, we can steal, we can even murder. These are all sins that flow out ultimately from anger. And so the suffering escalates. Our anger at someone else's suffering simply leads to more suffering, which leads to more anger and more suffering. And so the cycle continues and continues and continues. So often we use our anger to justify our sin. But David here says we mustn't. In our anger, do not sin. And in fact, he tells us what we should do. What, what should we do when we, get to, when we get angry? You've probably had advice, or if you haven't had advice about things to do when you get angry, you've probably given advice. So you know, when you find yourself getting angry... To ten. When you find yourself getting angry, do these breathing exercises. When you find yourself getting angry, take yourself out of the situation. You, you'll, have, you'll have heard this advice, you'll have given this advice. Here's what David says we should do. He says, when we find ourselves getting angry, instead of sinning, we should do this. Offer the sacrifices of the righteous and trust in the Lord. This is what you do. When you find yourself angry at the suffering of others... You do two things. You keep doing what's right and you trust God. And that is the exact opposite of sinning in your anger. As you get angry at the suffering someone else is going through, 
Do not add to that suffering by sinning yourself. Instead, keep doing what it is you're called to do. Someone else's actions do not justify our sin. No, we need to keep taking responsibility for what we do in that situation. What is it we're called to do? We're called to forgive. We're called to protect the vulnerable. We're called to be kind and patient, to exercise self-control. And so so often we look at a situation and we say, well, they're not behaving like that, so why should I? But that's not how we're called to respond. We keep doing what is right. And doing that will inevitably involve sacrifice. It will involve us sacrificing our moral high ground in the situation. It will involve us sacrificing our superiority. It will involve us sacrificing our right to lash out or to get even. It will involve sacrificing our desire to hold a grudge. The way of the righteous always involves sacrifice in a world where none of us consistently do what is right. So we offer the sacrifices of the righteous and we trust in the Lord. This is what happens. We get angry. We want to take matters into our own hands. We want to dish out judgment. We want to act as that person's saviour. We want to give people what's coming to them. But in doing that, we so often resort to sinful behaviours. We lash out in an attempt to get even. We lie and manipulate others in order to try and protect. We gossip and slander in an attempt to ensure people get what we think they deserve. How do you avoid doing that in your anger? Well, David tells you. You've got to learn to trust the Lord. In our anger, we trust that God is the only one qualified to ensure that what needs to be done is done. God is the only one qualified to ensure that fairness and mercy are both extended in that situation. I find that so hard. I find that hard in, in, my, in my family all the time. Like, how, what, how do I extend both fairness and mercy in this situation? What does that look like? Which, way should I be, which, which one should I be emphasising at this point? That's so hard for me to make that decision. God is the only person ultimately who knows this is how you extend both justice and mercy to this person. So we trust God with it. In our anger we don't try and be the arbiter of who gets justice and who gets mercy. We get angry, we take matters into our own hands and in that we sin. David says at times we might get angry But as we do, we need to learn to trust God with it. And then just crack on with doing what you're called to do. So that's that's, that's the two groups. You've got got one group of people who, when, when faced with your suffering, they will rejoice in that suffering. They may even mock God in that. They might try to encourage you, give up on God, he's not there for you. There's another group of people who, who in our suffering, will get angry. And in that anger, we've got to be careful that they don't sin. And then there's the final group of people in verse 6. And these are people who say this. Many, Lord, are asking, who will bring us prosperity? These are the Eeyores of the group. These are the people who despair, who say, this trouble will never end. They say, it's bad now, and there's no hope of it ever getting better. And when we are going through difficult things, there will be those around us who simply want to wallow. They want to talk about how bad things are, about how bad they've been, about how bad they always will be. And let's be honest, that can be strangely addictive. Like you can pass 
a sort of bizarrely enjoyable hour doing that over a cup of tea. I mean, I can't, so I don't like tea, but, you know, over whatever it is that you like drinking. There's a fleeting pleasure to be found in complaining about things, and specifically in finding a companion with whom we can share all of our self-pity and loneliness. But addictive and appealing though it can be, it is disastrous to walk that road when you're going through suffering. The momentary pleasure is more than cancelled out by the hopelessness it produces. So what's the answer to this hopelessness? As we feel that dark shadow of hopelessness encompassing us, what do we do? Well, we pray verse 6. I love verse 6 so much. Let the light of your face shine on us. That, that's always the answer to suffering. That's always the answer to distress. God, shine the light of your face upon me. Because that's always where we find hope when we feel so hopeless. That's always where we find light which can drive away the darkness. It was true for Job, wasn't it? So Job goes through, if you know the story of Job in the Bible, Job goes through incredible suffering. And his friends come and they offer him terrible advice over and over and over again for chapters and chapters and chapters and chapters of people saying, well, it's probably all your own fault anyway. And they do this for chapters. And, and Job goes, look, I hear what you're saying, but I, I, just, I just don't think that's true. I don't think that is what's going on here. And in the end, what, what is God's answer to him? What is it that finally satisfies Job? It's not the advice of his friends. It's a personal encounter with God. It's when God appears to him and says, this is who, am I, who I am. You need to see me. The answer to the hopelessness you feel in your pain is always seeing and a personal encounter with God. I want to try and be just a little bit practical for just a couple of minutes. Forgive me. In in the end, in your suffering, if, if ultimately our prayer is that God would shine his face on us, then you need to do certain things in the middle of your suffering. You need to go those places where God has repeatedly shone his face on people. Now, let me just clear In your suffering, open your Bible. God has spoken for hundreds and thousands of years in the Bible. The answer to your suffering is found in God showing himself to you. So open your Bible and look at it and pray as you do it. God, shine the light of your face on me. In your suffering, you need to sing to God. We, just, we, we sang uh, earlier that in the midst of suffering, he will help us sing. Sometimes in the midst of suffering, you're like, the last thing I want to do is sing. But singing is where people have met God for hundreds of years, where they've experienced God shining his face. Obviously, you need to be singing in your suffering. You need to be talking to your father in your suffering. Sometimes when you suffer, you, wanna, you don't want to pray. You feel like you don't have the words for it. You need to go to God in prayer because that's where God will shine his face on you. 
In your suffering, you need to meet with God's people because God has promised over and over again that he will show himself to you through his people. In your suffering so often, all you want to do is curl up in a ball in your room. You don't want to go out to life group. You don't want to come along on a Sunday. You don't want to meet up with your Christian friends. You just want to, you just want to escape. But ultimately, our prayer is that God would shine, would let the light of his face shine on us. And if you want that to happen, you've got to go to those places where God has shone out again and again and again. Because your best hope in suffering is always that you will see God and that the light of his face will shine on you. That you will know that when you are hurting, he cares. That you will know that when those around you are hurting, God sees it. That you will know that when you fail, there is forgiveness for you. That you will know that when you feel blisteringly angry, that you are still loved. As we suffer, and as those around us suffer, do not turn your back on God. Like those in verse 3 and 2. Don't sin in your anger like those in verse 4. Don't despair like those in verse 6. But instead, lift your eyes and see your God. And as you see him, find the hope and the love and the comfort that you need to walk through what you are facing and to walk with others in what they face. Let me pray for us.